0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I had dinner last weekend with a couple of part-time investigative journalists, which is a strange description. Suffice it to say that neither man is a journalist by trade. But all three of these gentlemen have published things which, by any accounts, have to be considered as good, hard, investigative, journalistic pieces. One of them commented that with so many things going on in the world, he really didn't have a place in his life to read fiction. He noted that nonfiction was indeed stranger than fiction, which then allowed the great quote from Mark Twain to enter the conversation, which was that, yeah, well, I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) yeah, It's not surprising that truth is stranger than fiction. Fiction has to make sense. So it is, I think, of the fictional program that airs on HBO titled Silicon Valley. Mr. Millen and I are both huge fans. What I guess I hadn't realized in watching its previous five seasons is that it's far truer than I realized. In one episode, a Silicon Valley CEO travels over to China to urge them to work harder than they've been working. They respond by taking him hostage. So I guess I have this from the Truth is Stranger Than Fiction department right out of the Week magazine. Let me just read it. Chinese tech billionaire Jack Ma came in for rare state criticism this week after he enthusiastically endorsed a 12-hour workday. The founder of Alibaba said in a blog post that the so-called 996 schedule, working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, that is increasingly the norm at Chinese tech firms, allows employees to enjoy the happiness and rewards of hard work. But Chinese internet commenters complained that such a schedule prevents workers from having a personal life. And the state-run newspaper People's Daily agreed. Advocating hard work and commitment does not mean forcing overtime, the paper said, calling the 996 culture unfair and impractical. China adopted the two-day weekend in 1995. But of course, Jack Ma thinks there's... No reason you can't work on Saturday as well. So far, as far as we know, he has not himself been taken hostage. Although we must openly wonder why that is. Let's do a little follow-up. We talked uh, some weeks back about the possibility in Ukraine that a comedian might unseat the incumbent in a presidential vote. And it turns out he has evidently done so. Comedian Volodymyr Zelensky swept to victory in Ukraine's presidential election last Sunday. An exit poll showed that millions of voters weary of war and economic hardship rebuked the ruling elites and ushered in fresh uncertainty for their geopolitically pivotal nation. Zelensky, I just love this part, a 41-year-old TV star with no political experience, won 73% of the vote in the runoff election, according to those exit polls. President Petro Poroshenko, who was running for his second five-year term, accepted defeat in a speech soon after polls closed. Zelensky, let me remind you, a comedian, TV star, with no political experience, walked on stage at his election night celebration to the theme song from Servant of the People, which is the popular sitcom in which he plays the president of Ukraine. To all Ukrainians, no matter where you are, I promise I will never let you down, said Zelensky. Though I'm still not president, I can say as a Ukrainian citizen to all the countries of the former Soviet Union, look at us. Everything is possible. Well, it is true. In a lot of nations, a guy that plays something on TV might find that the voting populace believes he is that. Now, when I say that, I'm not referring to, say, the public believing that Gilligan really was an island castaway. No, I'm referring to the fact that a substantial part of the voting public believed that Donald Trump is a successful businessman and billionaire. Although Donald Trump is neither, a lot of the public would like to believe that he is and chooses to believe that he is, in spite of the wackiness that has ensued with him in the Oval Office. As reported on this program last week, evidently people who keep track of some, such things have noted that his rate of lies per day has increased from 5.9 in his first year of office to over 22 currently in 2019. How many times has Donald Trump told us that he would release his tax records if Plank criteria was met? only to refuse to do so subsequently. This prompted David Leonard in the New York Times to ask, why is Trump so afraid of letting people see his tax returns? And boy, wouldn't we like to know the answer to that question? Catherine Rampell in the Washington Post said that a 1924 law governing the IRS is very clear, stating that upon written request from the House Ways and means chairman the irs shall furnish him the returns of any citizen the post said there are many good reasons for congress and the public to see his taxes so we can find out how after he went bankrupt he got hundreds of millions of dollars in cash to buy golf courses and other properties and whether he has been running the executive branch in america's interest or his own we're not going to make this show about donald trump today but you know uh, like the rest of you, I have to look at the fact that this guy had a plan to transport immigrant detainees from our southern border to sanctuary cities as retribution for democratic refusal to support his border policies. Boy, truth is indeed stranger than fiction. Apparently, a White House adviser, a guy named Stephen Miller, proposed to bus migrants to democratic controlled sanctuary cities like New York and San Francisco but uh, got shot down as inappropriate and expensive by officials at Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. One day after the story was published, Trump tweeted that the plan remains under strong consideration. It's retaliation to show them your lack of cooperation has impacts. All right, let's see if we can continue this program without mentioning Donald Trump again. It's a worthy goal. I do want to take a very brief detour into the fact that the Cathedral of Notre Dame saw its ceiling go up in flames, and since it gets something like 13 million visitors a year, this is upsetting people in France. I read that some devout French Catholics and fans of the cathedral believe that Jesus's original crown of thorns resides there. We at Radio Parallax take a skeptical view of this and add, perhaps ungraciously i don't know that i visited the cathedral back when i was in high school in paris and thought it was strikingly ugly i was struck by the fact that you know if it wasn't ugly enough (laughs) when they were done constructing it they decided to add gargoyles on the outside to make it even uglier and already people are expressing some dismay that they're going to spend a $450 million. I guess they've raised that already to repair it, which I suppose is better than the French citizenry getting stuck with the bill and, and their taxes. I don't know. I don't really care, and I'm half sorry I brought it up. One thing I'm certain I won't be sorry to bring up is an obituary I held over from last week's program. We have mentioned on the show that uh, the news, according to 1WAG, Consists of informing the public that Lord Jones is dead when they didn't know that Lord Jones was even alive. And that applies to this case. The obituary is that of Andrew Marshall, described as the Pentagon's longest serving military strategist. Well, he's dead now, and I never knew he was even alive, but perhaps I should have, noted The Economist. At the heart of many a large and ambitious empire sits one man who is not the ruler, though the ruler often listens to him and who runs no department, though his faithful followers are found all through the government. He is rarely seen in public, publishes very little, avoids journalists, sits silently through meetings, and yet steers the country. For more than four decades, America's version of this inscrutable figure was Andrew Marshall. He looked the part, small and benign, with a bald dome of a head, wire-rimmed glasses, and a bureaucrat's bland suit. He also inhabited the park hidden behind the thick buzzer-locked doors at the innermost A-ring of the Pentagon in an office buttressed with papers and books on every branch of knowledge. There, from 1973, he ran the Office of Net Assessment, ONA, a a tiny independent think tank whose remit was to compare the capabilities of the United States and its enemies in weaponry, troop training, efficiency, spending, deployment, planning, decision-making, readiness, and any other point of variance. Apparently, for decades, Mr. Marshall, unbeknownst to most of us, certainly me, was an incredibly influential figure in our federal government, at least that part of it that is involved in military operations and planning for military operations. The economist notes that for years, all defense strategies centered on the Soviet Union, and there his chief questions were, could it afford its military machine? And Was the government as ruthlessly monolithic as American officials supposed? His assessments, contrary to the CIA's, answered no to both. Curiously, Mr. Marshall advocated competitive strategies, borrowing from the business strategy he had studied at the Rand Corporation in the mid-60s, to make the weaker competitor overspend until it was driven out of the market. According to The Economist, this explains Ronald Reagan's approach to spending lots of money on defense that the Soviet Union would try to match and thus go bankrupt, I've always been rather skeptical of this theory of inducing the USSR to collapse by spending it into oblivion, but it's a fact that people I respect have great respect for this viewpoint, and apparently it has some merit, although I would counter that position by noting that um, all these estimates, be they the CIA's or others about how the Soviet Union was embarking upon a uh, plan to conquer the world caused us to spend a lot on the military we did not need to. We've talked about this in the show before. Plan B, dating, dating back to the 1970s, where all the neocons got together and said, nah, 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 we've got to spend a lot of dough. I'd like to think that someone like Andrew Marshall was behind all this, saying, if we force the USSR to spend this money, this evil empire will collapse. I'll have to accept that that probably was his viewpoint, but I think that the neocons had a lot more in mind, a lot that had to do with money, a lot that had to do with commandeering funds, whether the USSR remained as a threat or not. I don't know the answer, but I certainly appreciate the question. I think I mentioned on last week's program how it was that he truly decided to go out and pick up a copy of The Passage of Power, Robert Caro's fourth book on Lyndon Johnson. It was a New York Times bestseller, and a critical smash success when it came out in 2012, but this correspondent felt that since I know Robert Caro completely discounted any possibility of Lyndon Baines Johnson having any role in the murder of his predecessor, that I was just going to give it a miss. I was persuaded by a wise person that this was probably a dumb viewpoint, and that if Cairo was a good writer, and Cairo did his homework. It was probably worth reading what Cairo had to say. So I grabbed a copy, and I'm glad I did. Despite the fact that I'm a little over a third of the way through this 700-page tome, I had a couple things I wanted to comment on. Some years back, we had David Talbot on this program talking about his book Brothers, a look at Robert and John Kennedy. Talbot, like most people that have studied it, seemed perplexed by what happened in 1960 at the Democratic National Convention, when Lyndon Johnson, who expected to get the nomination by virtue of the fact that Kennedy would come up a few votes short of being nominated in the first ballot, at which point he would begin his wire pulling and would make himself the nominee. I was fascinated in reading Caro's analysis of these events, to realize that Johnson was almost right. He was, in fact, astonishingly close to being right. Robert Kennedy and Ted Kennedy and the whole Jack Kennedy political machine worked very hard at wooing Democratic delegates out in the western part of the United States, people whose natural inclination seemed to have been to be oriented toward LBJ. Johnson was apparently terrified at the prospect of humiliation, of reaching out to voters in the West, showing how badly he wanted to be president, and he wanted to be president his entire life long and was getting awfully close to being the Democratic nominee for that office. But in spite of all of his advisors telling him he had to reach out and let people know he was a candidate, he just couldn't do it. As the various state delegations cast their votes at this convention in Los Angeles back in 1960, They got down to the last state, Wyoming. Wyoming had 15 delegates. Kennedy, at that point, had 748 to his name, leaving him 13 short. It so happened that Kennedy had only managed to get 10 of the 15 delegates pledged to him. But his organization had asked Wyoming to commit all 15 delegates to Kennedy if they would make all the difference. Ted Kennedy was standing with the Wyoming delegation. That morning, Bobby Kennedy, counting delegates, had come down to tell the leader of the delegation, Tino Rocaglio, that the first ballot might come down to the five votes not pledged to Kennedy. Bobby said, if it comes down to Wyoming, will you cast all 15 votes from my brother? The reply was, I can't believe that after all those states, it will come down to those five votes. But he said, if it did, He would cast the whole 15 votes for Kennedy, and now it did. So it was, the Wyoming delegation said. Wyoming casts all 15 votes for the next president of the United States. Kennedy now had 763, two more than he needed. Had he fallen three short, the convention would have been thrown into the back rooms and might well have nominated LBJ. But LBJ screwed up, and the prize he'd been seeking his entire adult life, Escaped him. Yet, as we all know who live through it or know our history, Johnson winds up getting on the ticket as the vice presidential nominee. Since there was a lot of bad blood between the Kennedy and Johnson camps, particularly between Jack Kennedy's campaign manager, Robert Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson, who hated each other, there's been a lot of speculation over the years over why it was LBJ wound up on the ticket as number two. Robert Caro's analysis, which I think we have to accept, is that JFK ran the numbers and realized that if he was to get elected in 1960 as president and defeat Richard M. Nixon, he would need someone to carry most of the states in the South, which four years before had defected over to Dwight Eisenhower. And the guy to do that would be Lyndon Baines Johnson. Therefore, It was Jack Kennedy himself who called up LBJ, said he wanted to come down and speak to him, and offered him the number two spot. There's conflicting stories of what happened after uh, Johnson accepted JFK's offer. It is certain that Robert Kennedy came down to johnson and his people and did everything possible to derail the effort johnson had already done the math and realized that the vice president becomes the president on a regular basis in america 34 men had been president by 1960 no fewer than seven of them had started out as the vice president and became president when the chief executive expired Those are odds better than one in five, and Lyndon Johnson liked his chances. Therefore, despite the fact that he was probably the most powerful senator in the entire history of the United States Senate, he decided to step down from the position of power to become the nominee for vice president, an office which was once described by FDR's first vice president, John Cactus Jack Garner, as not being worth a pitcher of warm urine, or words to that effect. The Speaker of the House, Lyndon Johnson's political ally, Sam Rayburn, had seen what FDR had done to Jack Garner and told Lyndon in no uncertain terms he must not accept the offer to run as vice president. And despite the claims made by Robert Kennedy for years afterwards that the offer for the vice presidency was something pro forma, made to Lyndon Johnson in the expectation that he would not accept it is simply not true. If that were true, it would be hard to explain why it was that after Johnson explained to Kennedy that he was going to have big problems from Sam Rayburn, resisting him going on the ticket, Kennedy then took it upon himself to personally lobby Sam Rayburn. No, it seems certain that Robert Kennedy's version of these events, repeated by many others in the Kennedy camp, simply cannot be true. The great irony for Lyndon Johnson was that well, he was a man who used people, who was proud of the fact that he used people. He bent people to his will. Having gotten what he wanted out of them over the years, he would then assume a dominant position in the relationship once he had power. In 1960, Jack Kennedy did a jiu jitsu move on LBJ, using him to get elected and then making sure he had very little influence in the new frontier. I think a lot more to say about this when I finish reading the book, but if you will indulge me on one further comment from The Passage of Power by Robert Cairo. Cairo's analysis of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the respective roles of Robert Kennedy and LBJ in figuring out how to respond to a situation that, without a doubt, brought the world closer to nuclear war than anything before or since. And by the way, I know people who have uh, listened to the tapes. A lot, of, a lot of these discussions were recorded for posterity. And uh, it seems clear that the two voices of reason in the room were that of Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. The majority of the planners trying to figure out what to do advocated attacking Cuba. What well, we found out many decades later was that the local Soviet commanders of these bases in Cuba, which had now set up, nuclear weapons ready to go, were given the authority to respond on their own to an attack. Therefore, it seems pretty clear in retrospect that had the Hawks dominated the discussions and had we attacked, it is highly likely that nuclear bombs would have rained down on the southeast United States, which wouldn't have been such a good thing. People that were there at the meetings describe how when Jack and Bobby Kennedy were not present in the room, Lyndon Johnson was... Striving mightily to influence the others present, that we must attack, we must show that we're tough. Luckily for all of us, Johnson's views did not carry the day, and nuclear holocaust was avoided. Recalling the conversations many years later, Robert Kennedy, admittedly a critic of Lyndon Baines Johnson, said that Johnson would circulate and whine and complain about our being weak while never making any suggestions or recommendations himself. Said Robert Kennedy... We had perhaps amongst the most able people in the country, and if any one of half-dozen of them were president, the world would have been likely plunged into a catastrophic war. Lyndon Johnson, RFK made clear, was one of that half-dozen. Jack Kennedy, as always, was more oblique, but also made his feelings clear. His friend, the journalist Charles Bartlett, recalled that he said after the Cuban Missile Crisis that there were three men on the executive committee that he would be glad to see become president of the United States. Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, Douglas Dillon, the Secretary of the Treasury, and his brother, Robert, the Attorney General. Said Bartlett, he said that a couple of times, three men whom JFK would be happy to have succeeded him as president. The vice president wasn't one of them. Jackie Kennedy, writing about this era between 1962 and 1963, to presidential advisor and Ted Sorensen said years after the Kennedy assassination, You must know as well or better than I President Kennedy's steadily diminishing opinion of him. As his term progressed, he grew more and more concerned about what would happen if LBJ ever became president. He was truly frightened at the prospect. So it was that Lyndon Johnson, who spent only 10 hours and 19 minutes alone with the president in 1961, saw the figure diminish in 1962, and by 1963... Lyndon Johnson was evidently alone with JFK for a total of one hour and 53 minutes. Again, I'm sure I'll have a lot more to say about this fascinating volume after I finish it. At age 83, Robert Caro, still working on volume 5, an extensive memoir he has not published, yet a new book titled Working by Robert Caro has recently been published. It runs only to 240 pages, but is probably worth two minutes of talking about. And by all means, I highly recommend the summary, I guess you would call it that, of this memoir that appears in the pages of The New Yorker, January 28, 2019 edition, where Caro outlines how it is he was able to obtain information about LBJ that all previous biographers had missed. Missed by a mile, in fact. Caro starts off by how it was he went to work for Newsday on Long Island. The paper had a managing director named Alan Hathaway, who was right out of the front page. He had a deep prejudice against graduates of prestigious universities, and during his years at Newsday had never hired one, let alone one from Princeton, as I was. I was hired as a joke on him while he was on vacation. Hathaway then studiously ignored Robert Cairo. he describes how, as low man on the totem pole, he was working one Saturday when a phone call came into Newsday. The paper done a series of articles about. Mitchell Field, an Air Force base in the middle of Long Island that people were seeking to make into a civilian airport, although others wanted the facility to be turned into an educational institution. Cairo had not done any work on these Mitchell Field stories, but that Saturday, when a guy from the FAA was on the phone and and said something along the lines of, I really like what you guys are doing on Mitchell Field, and I'm here alone in the FAA offices, and if you send someone down here, I know what files you should be looking at. Cairo was alone, the only person in the city room. It happened to be the day of the big Newsday annual summer picnic on the beach on Fire Island. Just about everybody had gone there except him. He tried to reach his superiors on the phone, and the word he got back was, you know, you're going to have to handle this. Said Cairo, I will never forget that night. It was the first time I'd ever gone through files. As I went through the memos and letters and meetings and minutes, I could see a pattern emerging, revealing the real reason the agency wanted the field to become a civilian airport. Executives of corporations with offices on Long Island, who seemed quite friendly with FAA officials, wanted to be able to fly in and out of Long Island on their company planes without the inconvenience of having to drive to Idlewild or LaGuardia. Cairo gathered data all night long and took what he had back to the newspaper. Monday morning, Cairo received a call from Mr. Hathaway's secretary, Julia Blom. Allen wanted to see me right away, she said. I'm in New Jersey, I said. Well, he wants to see you just as soon as you can get here. I drove to Newsday that morning, every mile away, convinced I was about to be fired. When I entered his office, I saw that he had my memo. He didn't look up. After a while, I said tentatively, Mr. Hathaway. He motioned me to sit down and went on reading. Finally, he raised his head. I didn't know someone from Princeton could go digging like this. From now on, you do investigative work. I responded with my usual savoir faire, but I don't know anything about investigative reporting. Alan looked at me, from what I remember, as a very long time. Just remember, he said, turn every page. Never assume anything. Turn every goddamn page. He turned to some other papers in his desk, and after a while, I got up and left. And yes, Robert Caro credits a lot of his success to that piece of advice he got from Mr. Hathaway, that you need to turn every goddamn page. For our part, we need to take a damn break. So let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in our second segment. Don't go away.